Hey, good morning. All right. <laughs> We're in part two of a series called Emerge. Uh, and let me kind of explain to you guys what's going on and catch you up on what's, uh, what's been happening. We've been going through the book of Luke. And we've been, we're now in the second part of Luke. The first part was a Christmas story. We did that before the end of the year. Um, now we are going into chapter 3 through 4 of the book of Luke. We're finishing up chapter 3 today. And uh, the reason we're calling it Emerge is because this is a part in the story, this is a part in the book of Luke where Jesus kind of makes his appearance. He's emerging. He's coming into the public. And so most people are hearing about him for the first time. Although we've heard about him as a baby and a little kid in, you know, in chapters 1 through 2. Um, this is the first time we get to see Jesus as an adult. This is when we get to see 30-year-old Jesus. We've been talking about baby Jesus, and now we're ta- you're talking about six-pound baby, baby Jesus. We're talking now about adult Jesus, okay? And um, he's finally here. We've been waiting. It's like, if you're writing a book, why are you introducing your main character three chapters in? You know, and we've been waiting, and now he's here, okay? And um, the way he makes his appearance, his big, big, you know, the big show, right? He comes in, the main show is about to start. Jesus shows up, and we only get two sentences about him, okay? He has no dialogue, and, um, and right after the two sentences of plot, we have this long thing called a genealogy. You know, so-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so, and it goes on for like, I don't know, like 12 verses. I don't know how many verses. It goes on for a long time. Like, there's two verses of plot today, and a whole bunch of names after that. So, this is why you came to church today, so you could learn about all these people. Uh, so, um, uh, the reason, and I'm going to talk to you about why that genealogy is there in the Bible in the first place, because I'm sure when you guys are just flipping through the pages of the Bible, you're like, I can't wait to get to see genealogy. That's the reason I like to read the Bible, right? I mean, this is the part that we glance through because you don't know any of these names. And today, after today, you're probably not going to know any of those names anyways, okay? So we're not going to go over all the names, okay? But Luke, the writer of this part of the Bible, okay, he's trying to prove a point. And the reason why he's trying to prove a point through this genealogy is because there was this, this, this controversy that's going on at the time. So this is the controversy. For, for around the time that Jesus arrived, years before that, okay, years before Jesus arrived on the scene, there were a lot of people who showed up saying that I am the Son of God. There's a lot of people who showed up in the scene saying, I am the Messiah. And there's people who showed up saying, I am the prophet that the Old Testament prophesied about. There's a lot of crazies out there, right? There's a lot of people out there who are like, I am here to proclaim that I am the one, that I'm the chosen one. I am the one that everybody's been talking about since the Old Testament. And a lot of people put their faith in these crazies, right? And then eventually they found out that they, they, found out that they were a fraud or they were just kind of loopy, that they were like, maybe they totally believed, they're convinced that they were, but they really weren't, right? So there's all these people who showed up. And so the question is, why should Jesus be any different? Why should Jesus be any different? By the way, when I was growing up and I became a Christian um, around my senior year in high school, I remember there was a lot of people who tried to logically talk me out of the decision I made to follow Jesus. There's a lot of people who are like, are you sure you want to be a Christian, Cots? Because, and they'll list all these things like, oh, what about the contradictions in the Bible? If God is always good, then how could there be evil in this world? You know, like, all those th- kind of things, right? One of the things that somebody brought up to me was, well, how do you know Jesus is the Messiah? Because there are a lot of Messiahs, back, quote unquote Messiahs back then. I'm like, there wasn't. No, what are you talking about? And I did my research and it turns out the guy was right. The guy was trying to talk me out of this whole Christianity thing. He was right. He said, Cots, how do you, did you know that around the time that Jesus arrived, there's a lot of other quote unquote Messiahs? turns out the guy who told me that was right there were a lot of people who claimed to be the messiah back then so the question that came to me was well how do i know jesus is the one it turns out luke is trying to tell uh, is trying to 
to distinguish Jesus out of the, the sea of many people who call themselves messiahs. So the question that he's trying to deal with is here. Is Jesus the real deal? Is Jesus really who he says he is? And so he tries to prove it to us in many ways, okay? And so he starts off Luke chapter 3. We're going to look at it, start from verse 21. He starts off by saying this, okay? So this member of the previous scene, Jesus, uh, G- uh, John the Baptist was baptizing all these people, right? Now Jesus shows up. This is the appearance of Jesus in the book of Luke. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. This is the first appearance of Jesus as an adult in the book of Luke, right? Now, if you remember last week, I'll catch you up again. Um, John the Baptist was baptizing people because if your last name is the Baptist, you kind of have to do that, right? No, he, that's not his last name. But okay, he was baptizing people, okay? And the reason he was baptizing people in the Jordan River was because he wanted to get people to say, I'm willing to join this new movement of going back to what the original purpose of Israel was. Meaning, God called us to this one purpose, which is to bless the people in the world, care for the people in the world, love on the people in the world, connect people with God, you know, all that kind of stuff. And we kind of lost sight of that. So if you're willing to come back to the original purpose that we were placed on this earth for, then come on and get baptized. Join this movement that we're starting. Jesus comes on the scene and says, you know what? That happens to be the exact same thing I'm a part of. Sure, I'll get baptized. So he gets baptized by John the Baptist, okay? And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Now, what's interesting about this part is, I don't know if you guys know this, but there are four biographies of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, okay? And this is, we're looking at Luke, the Luke version of it. Luke, the Luke version is the only version where it says that the dove was actually a physical body. So if you read it, you're like, oh, it's figuratively the spiritual see-through translucent bird that flew and landed on Jesus. This is the only version of the Bible that actually specifies that, and no, it's not some make-believe bird that landed on Jesus. It's actually a bird. It looked like a real physical bird that landed on Jesus. So Luke is starting off by saying, do you want proof that Jesus is the real deal? The Holy Spirit in the form of a dove landed on Jesus after he got baptized. Now, to some of you, you're like, that's all I need to hear, Luke. That's okay. <laughs> whoa, whoa, praise Jesus. That's, that's him. He's the real deal. But there are other people who are like, are you sure that's not like a regular dove? <laughs> like, I see doves land on people all the time. Sometimes they, you know, poop on him. But in this case, it worked out. You know, maybe it's just luck. It's just luck that the dove happened to land on Jesus. Who's to say that the dove was the Holy Spirit, Right? skeptics, right? And, and I would say that's a good question. So for some people, let's just say a few small percentage, maybe like 5% of the people who are reading this story 2,000 years ago would look at that and say, wow, Jesus is the real deal. But there's still the 95% other people who are like, yeah, that could have just been a random dove. It's like, okay, okay, okay. So he's like, let me give you another proof. Next verse. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. Now, the dove thing, that could have been a coincidence. But the second thing is, we heard a voice come from the sky. <laughs> that was like, I don't, know if it was, I don't know if it was like, you are my son. Or it was like, eh, you're my son. Like, I don't know. I don't know what God's voice sounds like. I like to think that his voice is deeper than mine, okay? But it's like, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. Now, this convinced a whole group of people who are actually there. But the people who weren't there could have been like, are you sure you guys weren't hearing, like, like, maybe it was a voice in your head. Back then, they didn't have microphones or amps or anything like that. So, like, maybe somebody was behind that hill over there screaming something out. Maybe that's what it was, right? So, by, by putting this verse in there, Luke putting this verse in there, the people who are actually present, 
they are now convinced. Like, okay, yeah, we were there. We heard the voice. It was clearly not from the backside of that hill. We know it came from the sky. We're pretty sure that Jesus is the real deal because the other quote-unquote messiahs didn't get that introduction. You know, like, they, they didn't get that big announcement as Jesus was getting back to that. that this is unique to, this, to Jesus. Jesus is the one. He must be the messiah. He must be the prophesied one. He must be the one. Like, so now there's like more people who are convinced. But the people who are hearing this story, you know, from a secondhand account or a third person, right? They're like, hey, did you hear that there's a voice that came from the sky? They're like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's not what happened. Because I don't know anywhere recently in the news where people heard voices coming from the sky. I'm sure you guys are making it up. Or I'm sure you're just hearing things you want to hear. You know, so, so far, a few people are convinced. And now, Luke is like, now for the rest of you, I want to convince you that Jesus is really who he says that he is. Now, in order to understand how he's going to prove to the rest of us that he is who he says he is, um, we have to understand their culture. And so as I go through the genealogy, by the way, this is the end of the plot that we're going through. The rest is just names. Okay, who got begat who and so forth, okay? Um, as I go through this, I want to share with you about how they understood genealogies back then. Okay, maybe next time you read through this genealogy, you'll be like, oh, I, didn't, I, I see it now. Okay, by the way, when you hear the voice of God, the Father and the dove coming and there's the Son, that's the first mentioned trinity in the book of Luke. That's free information. Okay, so... So now he's like, let me give you give proof to the people who weren't there. The people who weren't convinced by the dove, people who weren't convinced by the voice coming from the sky. Now for the rest of you, let me use this as a form of proof. And back then, this was proof enough. Okay? Now, if you look at the screen right there, you'll see that the word son is highlighted. He says, this is my son. Now, that, that's very important to note because that's the point that he's trying to make here. Okay? So let's look at the next screen. So let's see. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was a son of, it was thought, of Joseph because he was, you know, a virgin birth, right? The son of Heli, or some version here says Eli. Um, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, uh, Janai, the Joseph, uh, Matthias. And, and the list goes on and on and on, right? And I'm probably going to butcher some of these names. By the way, in that long list, there's a guy named Yoda. <laughs> I spell with a J, J O D A, but it's like pronounced Yoda. I love it. Okay. All right. To know that, you know, Jesus is a descendant of Yoda is kind of. Okay. Okay. Now, okay, 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 okay. Okay. So let's go through this list. Next screen. Okay. So watch. This list is pretty long. And I'm not going to preach on every name. Okay. <laughs> There's 77 names up there. 77 names. Okay, and if we went through every single one of them, we would be like, this is why I don't like reading the Bible. I hate reading the Bible because of stuff like this. But the people back then, they read through the Bible waiting to see, see things like this because to them, each name had a story. Each name had a reputation and a whole ideal around them. So if I were to say, like, my descendant is, and this is totally not true, I don't know if you could tell, but, like, if I were to say George Washington was my ancestor, you'll be like, what? right and then you have this whole image in your mind of like george washington and you're like oh i could kind of see it in you cuts <laughs> no you can't but you know like that's how you know to us it's kind of like that but back then that was the big deal it's like if you're related to somebody in the past then we expect that in you that's how they saw it back then okay so let's go back next screen let's we're going to go back to the top and then we're going to go through the list okay and as you go down the list the first name that we're going to look at is are the two names amos and nahum now 
Some of you guys probably have heard that name before or seen that name before. And you have no idea who that is, but you've seen those names before. And the reason why you've seen those names before is because these two characters, Amos and Nahum, they have books in the Old Testament named after them. These two characters are what we like to call prophets. Okay, Amos, he was in action around 700 BC, mid-700 BC. Okay, and he was basically the one that looked at Israel, God's chosen people. He looked at them and said, you guys are my people, meaning you're supposed to represent me, right? Okay, but for some reason, the rich are getting richer and the poor is getting poorer, and that doesn't seem to work out because when the rich gets richer, every system you come up with, usually made by the rich people, they get richer and richer and the poor gets left out more and more. And as God's people, you're supposed to take care of each other. Like, what's going on here? And so he basically calls them out. That's what the prophet Amos did. A a prophet is a mouthpiece of God, a person who speaks on behalf of God. He comes on the scene and says, guys, let's fix this because if you're going to be God's people, you can't act like this. Nahum came uh, like in the 600 BCs, mid-600, okay? And he's basically, his name actually means comforter, okay? He shows up on the scene and all these people are defeated. They're like, oh, this has God abandoned us. Oh, I don't know. All these bullies are coming in and they're beating us up. And is God even, does God even care? And God shows up in the form of, you know, a message from a guy named Nahum. And Nahum basically looks at everybody and says, don't worry, God is not given up on you. Your enemies are eventually going to leave. God's going to kick him out and God's going to take care of you. But right now you have to go through this season. And so Nahum was a guy of comfort. Amos was a kind of guy of, of like speaking judgment upon these people. Okay, so, so when they heard that Jesus is related to these two guys, they're like, whoa, really? And remember, if you have somebody in your ancestry that is a big deal, they kind of expect that in you too. Okay, so meaning, if I were to say my grandfather, my great-great-great-great-grandfather was Abraham Lincoln, right? And they're like, whoa, cuts. Like, there's a lot of expectation on you. <laughs> you know, like, we expect you to lead the people. We expect you, right? And we kind of, it's an unspoken rule today, but back then, it was expected. Okay, so if you are related to somebody that's famous, then chances are they expect you, if you're related to somebody that's a great orator, then chances are they expect you to be a great speaker today. Okay, so there's this expectation on you. So Luke, as he goes through this list, he says, by the way, Jesus, his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Amos Nahum, just name-dropping, name just letting you know. So let's go through this list a little, little further. If you go down, you see this guy named Zerubbabel. 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 <laughs> Zerubbabel was a national hero. Zerubbabel, uh, what he did was when Israel uh, was cast out of, the, out of their land, so there's home right there, and we've been kicked out, eventually came a time where God said, okay, I'm going to pull you back in. And when God placed them back in their homeland, at that point, there's a guy named Zerubbabel who showed up and said, I will govern you guys. I will take care of you guys. Let's rebuild the city together. And so he was like a national hero. And so for somebody to say, Jesus is related to this guy named Zerubbabel, which is a fun name to say, Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, you know. Okay, it's to say like, whoa, Jesus is related to that hero? It's like saying I'm related to an athlete. It's like saying, hey, um, I'm related to fill in the blank because this is very polarizing. Uh, I could say Kobe Bryant. Some of you guys don't like him. Some of you guys like uh, LeBron James. I don't know, right? But whatever your favorite athlete is, fill in the blank right there. Like, I'm related to that guy. And you're like, whoa, you're famous, right? You're so famous. I can't believe you're related to that guy. And so the expectation is placed on Jesus even higher now because he's related to Zerubbabel, okay? Now, let's go to the next one. If you go down a list slightly lower, there he has the name David. That's the King David that you've probably heard of in the Bible. King David. King David. He, okay, Israel has had many, many kings, but the best king 
at the top, number one king that they've ever had was King David. King David was the one. Israel has never been in a better place than the time that King David was on the throne. So to say that you're related to King David is a big deal. As a matter of fact, they love King David so much, okay, that they said that there's a prophecy that there'll be another great king coming, and he has to be in the bloodline of David. So for somebody to say that Jesus is related to David is like a huge deal again. And not only that, they're like, wait, wait, if you're in the lineage of David, are you that king that was been prophesied? So there's this huge expect- expectation on this character, on Jesus, because he's related not just to Amos and Nahum, and not just Zerubbabel, which gives me great pleasure to say, okay? And not just David, but next guy on the list, not that far below, is a guy named Boaz. <laughs> that gives me great pleasure to say too. Boaz, okay. Boaz, if you don't know who Boaz is, read the book of Ruth, okay? But let me just kind of give you a quick overview. There's a character named Ruth, which the name of the book is named after, and she is with her mother-in-law, and all their husbands and sons are dead. That means you're a woman in a man's society, and so you're usually cast out to the side in that kind of society. Boaz steps in and says, I am going to redeem you guys. By me marrying you, okay, by associating you guys with me, you are going to be safe, so I'm going to take care of you. And there's this term that came up called the kinsman redeemer, which means I'm here to take the place of your shame and bring you into my family so that you don't have to be ashamed anymore. So you don't have to be cast out to the side of society anymore. So he he used his own reputation and his own power to protect the people who were dear and near to him. That's what he did. That's Boaz. They're like, whoa, Jesus is related to Boaz? That's so cool. So there's David, there's Boaz, there's Nahum, there's Amos, there's Zerubbabel, right? This is a great list. Who else are you related to? Well, let's find out. Next person on the list, Abraham. Abraham is the guy that started this whole God move in the first place. He's the father of all the Jews. Like, like, wow, Jesus is related to, to Abraham? But wait a minute, isn't every Jew related to Abraham? Yeah. Well, let's keep going on the list. There's then Noah. Noah, you're related to Noah? It's like, yep. Who is Noah? Well, he was the only righteous person in the, in the wicked t- uh, world. The world was falling apart. Noah was the only person who said, no, I'm not going to partake in that. I'm going to be that righteous guy. You're related to him? Yep. But isn't everybody, according to Jewish traditions, like, yeah? Well, let's go down further down the list. Oh, there's that name right there, Adam, the first human, as they would believe to be. First, first human. Also related to Adam, the first human being. like, so, yeah, yeah. But isn't everybody? Yeah, okay. Now, what's interesting about this genealogy, it starts really specific, okay? There's, you know, there's Joseph's, Mary's son, down all the way to Adam. And he ends by saying this, next screen. He ends by saying, Adam, the son of God. So this is what, now you have to follow this logic, okay? This is really interesting and it's kind of controversial. So let me walk you through it one step at a time. What Luke is saying is Adam was a product of God. And Adam, he had a son, his name was Seth. So he's basically also a son of God. Okay, and then Seth had another child whose, whose name was Enosh. And Enosh had Canaan. And Canaan had Mahalel. And the Mahalel had Yared or Jared, however, you know. Subway guy. Um, and he had Enoch, and Enoch had Methuselah, and eventually we get to Noah, and then eventually we get to David, Abraham, David, and so forth, right? And so wait a minute, it's like, wait a minute. So what you're telling me is, okay, is you're saying that Jesus is the son of God because Adam was the son of God, and then so wait a minute, by that logic, next screen, 
isn't everybody on the list a son of God? Right? Right? I mean, like, so Luke's argument is kind of weird here. He's basically saying, I have proof that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the son of God. How, how do I know that? Well, it's because uh, he is the son of so-and-so and so-and-so. He followed all the way back to the very beginning. He, uh, Adam, was the son of God. Therefore, Jesus is the son of God. But by that argument, you're basically saying that everybody in that list and everybody else, like if, if Adam was the son of God and Adam was the first human being, then everybody, you and everybody here, is, uh, well, we won't say son of God, we'll say child of God, right? Because there's women too, right? Luke, that's not a really good argument. How, how is Jesus unique to, what are you talking about, Luke? Like, is that, your, is that the best you can do? The whole Holy Spirit thing as a dove thing, that worked okay, you know? The voice from the sky, that was pretty good. But this is the worst argument you can make, Luke, because this now, you just opened it up to everybody became, becoming the child of God. Come on, come on, come on. You can do better than that. Well, okay, the reason why we think about this like that, okay, it's because of this. Now, when you say a child of something, today we think about it in one way, right, which is this. We think of it in a biological way. If I were to say my son Justin, Justin is son of Cots, right, that's biological, right? But in those days, and sometimes today, we see it in another way, which is this, representational, representational. Let, let me, um, let me uh, give you an example. Um, on Friday, my family, we went to Disneyland. We love to go to Disneyland. We take Justin because he loves Disneyland and he has a pass. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and he, um, he, he, he has this, this personality where he, he loves to eat, but he doesn't like to eat dinner. He, doesn't, like, he likes to snack, but he, does, he eats a small dinner so he can eat more dessert later. That's, that's kind of his deal. So we had the fried chicken dinner, which was really, really good. Best chicken, fr- fried chicken I ever had. Okay, and then before we left the park, he said he was hungry, so we stopped by the churro stand and we got him a churro. About yay long. It's pretty long. And we bought two because I thought, I will have one. My wife would have another, and Justin could bite off of ours you know, every once in a while. But he ended up taking a whole stick. And so we were walking towards the tram, and by the way, his favorite ride at Disneyland is the tram, which makes me wonder if I need a pass for that at all. <laughs> but okay. And so we get to the tram, okay? And he's standing there waiting. And you can see that he's starting to get stressed out. And I'm like, what's going on? Justin turns around to me and looks at me and says, I need to finish this now. I'm like, well, why? And then he recites the very announcement that the tram guy says, which is, there will be no eating or drinking or smoking on the tram. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh my goodness, this kid, he likes rules. Like, he likes to follow rules. And then I looked at my wife, and my wife is like, she, she's like, he is totally my son. You see, my wife loves a world of rules. I like the world of freedom, okay? I like to do whatever I want to do. She likes to have an orderly, nice, neat box type of world where everybody follows the rules. And I've discovered at that point, oh my goodness, Justin really is your son. <laughs> like, there's no way, right? Because, you see, representationally, now we know biologically he is the child of my wife. Okay, I guess my daughter is more like me. She's like a free spirit. She makes a lot of noise. Okay, but, but, but we know this to be true. Like, we even use terms like, oh, you're truly the son of your father or your mother. We say that because a lot of times we know that you are... The bio, we know, obviously, you are the biological child of, of that parent. But when you start seeing 
characteristics, personalities that, that are similar to your parent, you say, oh my gosh, you're totally your, son's, your, your father's son, or you're totally your mother's daughter. Or, you know, we say things like that, not to make an obvious statement that you are biologically related. We say that because we see the same characters and qualities in the child as we see in the parent. Does that make sense? So representationally, you can see be the child of somebody. And so in that culture, even more so. As a matter of fact, they use that a lot, not just, so if you're a carpenter, okay, let's just say you make chairs and tables and stuff like that. And not only do you make chairs and tables and stuff like that, you also have the best customer service. The minute somebody walks in, you say like, hey, welcome to my shop, right? And, and if somebody is hurting for money, you're like, you know what? You could have it for free. And that's the reputation you have in your village now. And now you teach your trade to your son. Now your son is a carpenter. And a customer comes in and he says, hi there. You know, you don't say welcome. You say, hey, what's up? Okay. And when somebody's hurting for money, you're like, mm, then no, no, no deal. You can't go. No, no, no. And you treat everybody in a really rude way. Now, that child could be your biological son, but he's not representing your values. And in those days, if you don't represent your father or your mother or the value of your family, in some ways, you are disowned to say, you are not the son of me, even though you're biologically the son of that person. You would be disowned because you don't represent that person well. As a matter of fact, we have verses in the Bible that use that same kind of language. Here's an example from 1 John, okay? It says, this is how you know who the children of God and who the children of the devil are. Now, they're not talking about this biologically, Okay, the devil isn't like, oh, I'm pregnant. Oh, watch me give birth to this child. Like, the devil is not pregnant. The devil's not giving birth to anybody. But in this passage, they're using the same way of the, you know, the, what I'm explaining right now to say that you are a child of somebody because you represent their qualities. And in case how that you want to wonder how that verse ends, this is how it ends. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child. Again, if you were a representation of God, you'll be doing A, B, and C, but instead you're doing X, Y, and Z. And therefore, he says, it says that you're not a child of God because you don't represent him accurately, right? So he says, anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. It's like, if you're not loving the people around you, that you're not representing God. Therefore, you can't call yourself the child of God. You're actually more representing the other dude, the, the, the devil, you know? And so... You have to understand that in the culture, you can be biologically a son of somebody, but you also have to be representationally a child of somebody. It's at that point that you're fully a child of God. Okay, so are we clear on that? So this is why Luke 3, uh, next verse, 38, this last part of 38, it says, Adam is the son of God. Now, when God created Adam, Adam was created in his image. So here's Adam and Eve created in God's image. Okay, and they are living and representing God in the way that he's like, oh, look what you're doing. That's exactly what I would do. Like, there is that connection, right? But in Genesis chapter 3, things start to fall apart. Sin enters the world. They decide that we're not going to follow God's example anymore. We're going to do our own thing, okay? And so things start to fall apart. And it's at that point that they forfeited the right to call themselves the child of God. As a matter of fact, next screen. From here all the way to the top of the list, nobody qualifies as a child of God. They might be biologically connected to Adam, and therefore they might be biologically a son of God. But as a representation of God, they all fall short. In the book of Romans, one of the first Christian leaders, Paul the Apostle, he says, we all fall short of the glory of God. This is what he means by that. 
he says, we can't call ourselves the children of God. Why? Because we don't represent him well. 76 names on this list did not represent God well. Therefore, they all forfeited to be called the child of God. The last person, number 77, is the only person who represents God exactly, and that is Jesus. So this is how Luke is proving to everybody that he is indeed who he says he is. He says, do you want proof that Jesus is who he says he is? All those other crazies that came before him, they all forfeited the title of son of God. Why? Because they didn't live up to the name of God. But Jesus, and he's kind of saying like, this is just chapter three. If you read to the end of the book, you'll see that he does everything exactly the way that God would do. Therefore, he is truly the son of God. Everybody else fell, fell short. All 76 of them fell short. Number 77, Jesus is the only one who is really the son of God. He's the only true representation. Now, as, I note, as you guys noticed in that list, we went through prophets, we went through heroes, we went through kings, we went through the kinsman redeemer, we went through the right, only righteous one in a wicked society, we went through the first man, right? And at the end of the list, there's the son of God, named God is there. Um, there's a reason why Luke decided to go through all these names. Because remember how I said... Because your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather is a prophet, they expected Jesus to be somewhat, be a better version of that. Well, that expectation was really on Jesus. So he, basically, Luke is here is saying, not, he's not just saying, here's proof that he, Jesus is the son of God. He actually goes beyond that and says, it's like, remember that prophet Amos and Nahum? They were great prophets, but they weren't the best prophet. Because when you think about prophet, this is what you think. Here comes a prophet who shows up in the scene, right? And what, the first thing he says is that he says condemnation. He says, oh, you're going to burn. <laughs> you know, you're going you're gonna to have a really tough time where, you know, your crops are going to all, all, all go bad. You know, like, that's what you expect from a prophet. Jesus shows up on the scene and says, let me show you how the whole prophet thing is really done. And he says, I'm not here to condemn, but I'm here to save. He's like, that's what a real prophet would do. Or when it comes to heroes, like, your idea of a hero is whoever has the biggest sword. If you can win a war, then you're considered a hero. Let me show you how a real hero does it. Jesus never picks up a sword. He never fights back. But for some reason, through love, he's, over, he's, he's able to win over enemies. It's like, that's what a real hero does. Or, 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 you know, like we talked about a king. A real king, right, would do everything that he can to maintain his spot on the throne. Jesus says, let me show you what a real king, how he does it. He steps off his throne. He comes down to the level of a servant, and he dies for them. That's how a real king should do it. He's like, let me show you a truer and better version of what a king does. Or he says, let me tell you about what a truer and better, a true and better version of a, of, a, of a redeemer is, a kinsman redeemer. You see, because Boaz, what he was able to do was protect two women. A true redeemer can protect an entire world by putting himself as a sacrifice. It's like, that's how a true redeemer does it. A better redeemer, that's how he would do it. The only righteous one in the place of a wicked world, like Noah was, he's like, you want to know what a true righteous person in a wicked world would do? Because what Noah did was he separated himself, he distanced himself from the wickedness of the world, and that's how he was saved. Jesus would say, a true righteous person in a wicked world would dive right into the wickedness of the world and lay his life down for the people who don't deserve it. That's what a true righteous person would do. See, he's like, I am a better prophet 
a better and true prophet. I am a true and better hero. I am a better and, and true king. I'm a true and better redeemer. I'm a true and better righteous person. And then we get to the very end of the list. Adam, I am a true and better human. If you want to know what a human being ought to look like, don't look at Adam. It's like, look at me, because I'm going to show you what the new standard of humanity looks like. And at the very end of the list was named God. And he says, all of you guys have this weird idea of who God is. You think that God is an angry God, because back then they only had the Old Testament. So you think God is angry. You think God just can't wait to judge the world. You think God finds some joy in striking people down. It's like, no. I am the true and the better representation of God than anything you've seen before. Just watch how it, so Luke is inviting us saying, do you want to see what God is like? Do you want to see what a king looks like? Do you want to see what a true prophet looks like? Do you want to see what all these things look like? He says, look at Jesus. This is what sets Jesus apart from everybody. It's this. Jesus is the true and better prophet, hero, king, redeemer, righteous one, human, and son of God. He is the real deal. And this is how he starts his Jesus story. Now, these things, things like this list, like prophet, hero, king, redeemer, righteous one, human, son of God, these are the things that we, they all put their trust in. In in our world, we would say, I can't wait, you know, for so-and-so to be elected because that's going to change our country. That's going to change my living conditions. I can't wait until this law is passed or that law is passed. That's going to change. We put our hope in those things, right? Back in those days, they put their trust in these people. That was their true hope. So what Luke is saying through this genealogy is this, is that Jesus is the true hope. And so he's inviting us, come on, go ahead, I dare you. I dare you to read the book, the rest of the book that I just wrote for you guys because you're going to see that he is truly, truly our only hope. Now, this idea that Jesus is the true and better version of all these things in the Bible um, is not an original idea. It's been in the Bible since 2,000 years ago. But somebody recently, his name is Dr. Timothy Keller. He, he's a pastor. He just retired. He's from New York. He looked at this passage, and he's like, I have this amazing idea, and he just wrote this long exposition about this. And somebody got a hold of that and made a video. So I want to show that video to you guys because I think he puts it in much better ways than I do. So take a look at the screen. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative in which every story, every character points beyond itself to one who is greater. The story of Adam and Eve is not just about the first man and woman. There is a true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is ascribed to us. There is a true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. There is a true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. There is a true and better Isaac the son of laughter, of grace, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. There is a true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, 
only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. There is a true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. There is a true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. There is a true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. There is a true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his foolish friends. There is a true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. There is a true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. There is a true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. There is a true and better Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative that points to one person, Jesus. So Jesus is the true and better version of everyone on that list. And what's true about that is, next screen, Jesus is the true and better you. And that God who says, if you want to know what a true and better version of you is, Look at Jesus, because that's the goal that we're all striving for. Because God is represented in Jesus. And Jesus is a true and better version of every single person in history, because he's the only one that's worthy of being called the true Son of God. And we all strive, and, we let, and God is inviting us to a relationship with that true and better version of you. And he's also inviting you to let him transform you. And so today, what I really want us to focus on is this. The minute you say, yes, I want to be in relationship with Jesus, he takes his label of being the true son of God and he places it on you and says, now you can also be called a child of God. And maybe in this new year, you're thinking like, I do want to make that step in my life. Like, I want to make that step in my life to say like, hey, I've done my life my own way, right? But now I feel like I want to make that commitment to say, I want to follow Jesus, and if that's you, I want you to focus on this one thing, okay? Because this is the one thing I want you to know today. It's not by your might. It's not by how hard you try that you get to earn that title. If you want God, the creator of the universe, to look down at you and say, this is my child, it's not because you worked and earned that title. It's because Jesus lived that perfect life and he said, now I worked for that title and I just want to hand it over to you. And if you want to have that good relationship with God, that relationship is offered to you just by saying, yes, I want to have that relationship. That's it. He says, that's all it takes to be called a child of God. So in the New Testament, there's all these people who mess up over and over and over again, but they keep getting called the child of God. And all of us have messed up, right? And this is why it's called grace. God gracefully gives us the title, Son of God, 
if you want to be in relationship with them. Let me close this in prayer and let me pray for